Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about part two, the power and promise of Gen Z. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever for creating the world that we all want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am absolutely delighted to have back on our show Anne-Marie Hayek. She's a cultural consultant and generational expert. Anne-Marie, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'll build on the conversation we had last time. I have my entire career, well, my entire life been a student of humanity and a student of culture. And my entire career have studied culture and have studied, you can say, the arc of humanity. And so spent my 20s working as a cultural anthropologist around the world for a lot of the world's largest companies, understanding how people live, how people think, what they believe, what informs them and the decisions that they make. And then started my first company, Global Mosaic, 19 years ago, which is a cultural consultancy and have been consulting with companies, organizations, even presidential candidates, even countries, et cetera, and helping them understand how our culture continues to evolve, how the way that people think and live and behave, how their worldviews continue to evolve. And so as part of that, have studied generations for many, many years. And it is most recently in studying Generation Z that I became so compelled and so taken with the power and the pivotal nature of this generation that I founded my second company, Z Speak, to focus on Generation Z and then published the book, Generation Me, The Power and Promise of Gen Z, which we'll talk more about now. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I love the synergy that where you're focusing on the generations overall, we're really looking at how is leadership evolving And as the world becomes more complex and more interconnected and more global, how does leadership need to evolve to navigate and take advantage of the best opportunities and also to mitigate some of the risks we see associated with that kind of interconnection? Well said. Thank you. So today, Anne-Marie joins the show to talk about her new book, Gen We. In this book, she joined forces with thousands of Zs to tell their powerful stories, From new ideas on capitalism, politics, and climate change to education, gender, race, and work, Anne-Marie explains how Gen Z thinks and what they envision and why we should be hopeful. Zs are not naive idealists. They're hardened realists with a bold vision for how we can transition, recreate, and progress. Gen We is the invitation to see the future they will create as it's unfolding. And this is part two. So Anne-Marie, if you wouldn't mind, can you revisit a little bit of the description of Gen Z, the age, and what are some of the general characteristics for people who may not have memorized everything you said in your first show? (laughs) Absolutely. And I also think it's important to say there are actually six generations alive today. There are a lot of generations that are coexisting on our planet at the moment, Gen Z being one of them. And as I said last time, I always feel like as someone who studies culture, who studies humanity and studies generations, I'm the first to say that we don't want to oversimplify, that studying generations is an imperfect science for sure. But it is very instructive in helping us really look at thoughtfully and analyze thoughtfully 
where we've come from and where we're going. Because each generation, given that they were born during a certain point in time when our economy was what it was, when our global politics were what they were, when our culture and our worldview was what it was, right? That does influence a generation's values. It influences how they view the world. It influences how they view each other, their role in the world, et cetera. So those six generations that are alive today are the silent generation, which are the generation born between the world wars. So at this point, 76 years old and older. Then the boomers, which we actually talked about quite a bit last time, the boomers were the largest generation for a very long time. The baby boom, right? Beginning with the baby boom in 1946, then born through 64. And a lot of our youth, Gen Z and millennials, a lot of what they're pushing off against are the boomers as we talk about the kind of arc of humanity and how that pendulum continues to shift, these young people we talk about today are kind of intentionally providing a counter to some of the worldview and the orientation around politics and capitalism, et cetera, that the boomers actually laid out as such a large, important generation. And then we have Gen X, which is me. We were born between 65 and 80. And I always say we were kind of the sandwich generation between the boomers and millennials, and no one really paid that much attention to us. We were a small generation. We do have redeeming qualities, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. (laughs) (laughs) And then the millennials that we all paid a lot of attention to for a long time, which are currently between the ages of 24 and 40. And then Gen Z that came along, born around 1997 through 2010. So Gen Z are roughly between the ages of 10 and 23, just turning 24 right now. And those distinctions, those kind of age parameters, again, like all generational work is not a perfect science, but we look for kind of pivotal changes, things that occurred that really impact who that generation was and what was happening during those formative years. And we talked about how millennials and Zs were different last time. And I'll talk a little bit more about that now and what really makes Zs so different from them. And then I just don't want to forget, we have the alpha generation, which is the six. Alphas are 10 and younger. And we don't know that much about them yet, but we know that they will be different from Zs because they have two big defining characteristics already. And one is COVID. Right. I mean, these kids are 10 and younger, and so their lives will always be defined to some degree. Right. Probably how we will always approach education, work more remotely, et cetera. All of this will probably forever be changed by COVID. And they're also growing up in a very different digital world. While Gen Z were the first digital natives, now we have Alpha, which is the first generation to grow up literally with AI and voice commands. So tech is fused into their world in a way that it never has been, even for Zs. So Alpha will be a really interesting generation to take a look at. I was going through the blog this morning and some of my notes. And for people who haven't studied this the way you have, why are they different and why do we care? How do we think about recruiting them, retaining them? What impact do we anticipate? I realize they're young, but what impact do we anticipate them having across the spectrum, because I think you mentioned last time, this is the largest living generation now supplanting the boomers. Politically, voting block-wise, they're going to be pretty powerful in the next eight years. Absolutely. And there are a number of things that you just said that I would love to talk about today. 
And let's definitely come back to the political voting block because there's some really interesting things, things happening politically that the millennials actually kicked off, but that the Zs are following behind them on in terms of this kind of shift toward more progressive positions on things and how those are showing up in the numbers. And to your point, the median Gen Z right now is only 17 years old. So they're still relatively young. Yet, as we talked about last time, we are seeing them. We are seeing their power. It's not just their size, although absolutely the fact that they are now the largest generation making up 27% of our population is huge. I would say there are really four things besides their size that make them so incredibly powerful. And I'll talk a little bit about each one of those. But one is how unified they are that they are an incredibly unified generation and is their digital connectivity that create a lot of that. It is the fact that they are so activist. They mobilize in mass with such savvy. It is that they are so diverse and inclusive. And something we didn't talk about last time that I'd love to talk about more is how creative they are. In the book, I have a chapter called The Most Creative Generation. I actually have the most unified generation, the most activist generation, the most inclusive generation, and the most creative generation. I would say that those are the four things that really makes this generation so powerful that really accentuate the fact that they are the largest. So I can talk about unity a little bit more to build on the conversation we had last time. Last time we were talking about how they are digital natives. So unlike older generations, even the millennials The median age of a millennial when the iPhone came out was 19. And in the early 20s, when Instagram came out. So even though we think about the millennials as being very digitally savvy as well, they actually didn't really grow up with technology in the same way, whereas Zs have. And as we know, because we see them, they're on their phones, they're on their screens all the time. They're often criticized for that. But the plus side of that is that they've been connected with each other. The first generation has been connected from a very, very young age. They have this unification. They're accustomed to sharing their stories. They're accustomed to being connected to each other. And what we've really seen is that they are able then to share their stories, to discuss and debate, and to mobilize around a lot of their shared passions and shared interests. Three years ago, no one even had really paid any attention to who these young people were. And then starting three years ago, we saw Parkland happen, and we saw Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg, and we saw that they called BS on gun regulation, and we saw them elevate that whole conversation. And then we saw Greta, and we saw the climate strikes, and we saw our youth really start to mobilize around climate. And then last summer with Black Lives Matter, and it continues to this current week, whatever's happening in the world, Zs are there showing up wherever there is a social issue that is an important one in our world, in our country, in our culture, Zs are increasingly showing up. We conducted so much research as we were writing this book. And at one point, We surveyed about 1,500 Zs from across the country um, and asked specifically how important it was for them personally to speak out and have a voice on issues happening in their community, their country, or their world, and how many of them had done that and how had they done that. And I know this sounds unreal, but 100% of these 1,500 Zs said they personally felt it was important to speak out and to have a voice. And we think about Zs as doing that online. We think about them posting. We think about them communicating online. But it turns out that 82% of them said that they actually discuss actively 
political and social issues with their friends in person. They're talking about these things. Are they also showing up? I think you mentioned showing up in D.C. over gun violence. The majority of Zs have actively taken to the street at least once to support or protest an issue that they are passionate about. And we think about that. The majority of Zs, when their median age is 17, right, the number of them that have marched out of school for climate Mm -hmm. or for gun regulation, it's fused into their DNA from a young age. My generation, Gen X, I never took to the street for anything. And we talked a little bit last time about really the last time that people think of a generation as having this kind of activist bent would have been the boomers in the 60s. But if you look at those numbers, the largest Vietnam War protest, they estimate around 500,000 people showed up. So that's a relatively small percentage of boomers who are actually showing up and doing the marching. Even if other boomers supported it, they were perhaps at home watching on TV. And so it's really unusual that we had a million Zs show up after the Parkland shooting in D.C. We had millions of them that showed up and walked out of school as part of the climate strikes. We had 77% of them who stated that they participated in Black Lives Matter by the end of summer of 2020. So they are really showing up and continue to do that. And these are young people. If I think back to what I was doing at 10 and 11 years old, it wasn't activism. That wasn't what we did in my family. It wasn't. I think this is a really important statement to make. I think there are two things I would caution about. One is that older generations tend to think about them as being idealists, like older generations maybe. They have this view of some utopian society And young people often criticize for that, where in fact, because these have had access uniquely, the first generation to have access to everything that's happening in our world, the hard, the ugly, everything, the mass shootings, the police brutality, you name it, from a young age, they are actually not idealists. They are very much realists with real solutions. But the second thing that I think we tend to do is I think that then we tend to idealize them and we tend to say, oh, look. They take to the streets. They're so passionate about these issues. And when you really talk to Zs, they are passionate about these issues, but this isn't what they want to be doing, Maureen. They would like to be hanging out at the mall with their friends like we were when we were teenagers. They feel like these issues are happening and we're at this critical juncture in so many ways on so many of these issues, climate certainly being one of their flagship issues, and that they don't have the luxury of time. So they feel that they have to take to the streets and they have to let their voices be known and they have to be part of the solution. We are hearing the data about how climate change will impact, potentially in my lifetime, but certainly in their lifetimes, that we'll see significant impact based on climate beyond the volatility we're seeing right now. So I can imagine if I'm 15 years old or 20 years old and reading something that's going to happen in 15 or 20 years that's in my prime working time, I would certainly want politicians and my parents and community leaders and businesses to be engaged in these topics. Disease from a young age, it feels as if they're part of this story. They're part of this narrative that they didn't necessarily choose 
to be protagonists in. And they're kind of trapped inside of this story. And everyone has to be a player in this story or has to be an actor in this story, whether they want to be or not. Because in the case of climate, they were born onto a planet that was already experiencing these natural disasters in a way that it wasn't for us. You know, from the time that they've been born, they have experienced these category, whatever hurricanes and the wildfires and the last six years have been the six hottest reported in history. And they've lived through those past six and they know what that feels like. And they learn about the climate projections. And when they look at the climate projections and the rest of us say, hey, we could surpass 1.5 C above pre-industrial levels by 2030, or X percent of our planet might be uninhabitable by 2050. 2050 sounds really far away to us right? For a long time, 2030 felt really far away. Z's look at this and they say, 2030, that's the year I'm supposed to graduate from college. 2050, that's when I may have kids. I would, I'll be in the middle of my life, right? Which is why Z's have the lowest dated intention of having children. And they talk about that as being directly connected to what they fear may be our planetary reality at that point. We asked Z's, in all of our research, again, we did research ongoing. And one of the many questions that we ask these is paint a picture of what you believe the world will look like in 2050. Mm -hmm. And it was like some apocalyptic movie from the future, the way that they talked about the lack of resources, the fighting over resources like water our planet that would no longer be inhabitable. I mean, they're really quite worried about what this will look like. It's grounded in the science. It's grounded in, if you go to the IPCC, right? If you go look at any of the United Nations numbers, these are the projections that they're putting out there. And Zs are looking at them because these key climate milestones dovetail with their personal milestones in their lives. The year that I meant to graduate from high school, from college, potentially begin a family. So it feels very, very, very personal to them, much more so than it has for older generations who felt a bit like something that was potentially going to happen at some point in the future, right? But it, it, didn't, it didn't feel as tangible. It didn't feel as acute, for sure, to us. Mm-hmm. We also asked, going back to the point that they feel like they're protagonists in this story that they didn't necessarily, or in this play, that they didn't necessarily intend to be cast for, we asked Zs at what age they really began to pay attention to issues in our world, at what age they really feel like they were awoken to some of the issues of our time. And over half of them said they were 12 or younger when there was some significant event Again, whether that be a climate event, whether that be a mass shooting, something that felt very close to home for them. And actually a third of the Z's that we asked said they were nine or younger when they felt like they were really awoken to activism and to needing to be involved in some of the issues of our time. Nine or younger. And then you continue to have those conversations with them and they talk about how they do feel that their childhoods were truncated. They didn't have as many years to just have that childhood innocence because of their exposure to these things. So that then dovetails and explains a little bit of 
we're seeing depression, anxiety, and suicide levels higher. And I have continued to wonder what is so difficult for young people, but my overlay was my childhood. I didn't have that kind of challenge, so I also didn't have the same kind of depression and anxiety. Absolutely. And that's where this digital nativism goes both ways for sure, right? And I feel like we spent our first podcast talking a lot about how their digital nativism and the fact that they're connected gives them such incredible perspective, such incredible shared unity, such incredible shared empathy, such an appreciation, such an inclusive nature, right? Because I hear all these diverse stories. And so they're incredibly inclusive in nature. So there are so many positives that come from their digital nativism. But one of the dark sides of that is absolutely the fact that we as humans are not intended to take in so much trauma, even as adults, this constant 24-7 access to what's happening in the world. And we had a discussion with Z's right around the time that we were exiting Afghanistan. And we had a conversation with them to understand how that was impacting them. And a lot of what they said to us was that, yes, it was really hard to watch the people hanging on to the planes as planes were departing Afghanistan. It was heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching for all of us. At the same time, they said, but it's just another day and another week in the media cycle that we have seen since we have been little. So it's, it becomes hard for us to process all of that. It's actually really interesting is that what we tend to see with Z's and their activism is that their activism is becoming more localized over time because they feel a need to have a sense of control over things. We all feel this need to be able to make some impact, some tangible impact and have some control over our lives. And so if they can be involved in things that are happening locally in their communities and they can feel that they're making an impact and they can be having human to human relationships then those are some of the areas that Z's are increasingly moving toward in their activism. Poster child for climate, Greta Thunberg, right? She just came out last week and said she's exhausted. She's so tired of talking about climate. Jamie Margolin, who was the co-founder of Zero Hour, which is one of the largest youth-led climate organizations in the U.S. and does amazing work and continues to do amazing work, as does Greta, as do all these people in their organizations, and Greta's organization, which is called Fridays for Future. But they're exhausted. They're experiencing high levels of burnout. Mm -hmm. And we understand why. As adults, we're experiencing high levels of burnout, right? So these kids are not our superheroes that are going to swoop in and save the world. I think we have to be really careful that we need to support them, we need to listen to them, we need to create coalitions with them, etc. That brings us back to politics. And I love the idea that we as adults, one, can't abdicate, two, are still responsible for partnering with them, showing them the way, and finding a way out to the extent possible of the world that we very much contributed to creating. Absolutely critical. Let's talk about politics a little bit, because this is actually really interesting. And this follows the millennials. This is true for millennials as well, though, for Z's to an even greater extent. They tend to have positions that would historically be considered more progressive, which isn't to say that they're Democrats. One third of Z's insist on identifying as independent because they do not want to sign on to one party or the other. 
They want to have the freedom to think independently. So it's very important to them. They are the largest generation to identify as independents, right, versus Democrat or Republican. However, if you look at their positions on things, they tend to agree and support the idea that climate is human cause, that we need to be more involved in climate. They tend to be, because of their great diversity, because they're the first generation that will have a non-white majority, they tend to be very pro in terms of all kinds of diversity policies, in terms of our response to police violence, etc. In many of these ways, they, as a generation, you would say really support the left in terms of their positions on things. But one of the questions I know that you would ask, Maureen, which is really interesting, is that don't younger generations usually start out as idealists? And then as they get older and they move into having a job, maybe owning a home, maybe having a family, these various things, they move a little bit more to the right. They become a little liberal as they go. But here's what's really interesting. We worked a lot with political scientists as we were writing our chapter called We the Z People. (laughs) And one of the things that's really interesting is that historically, actually, if you look at youth, like even as recently as the 2000s election, the youth vote, which is considered 18 to 29 year olds, was actually split between Republicans and Democrats. And if you go back even to like the Reagan election or George W. Bush, they both won the youth vote. So the youth actually skewed Republican in those elections. It was the millennials in 2004, for the first time when millennials could vote in mass, that the youth vote landed to the left. And since 2004, as millennials have continued to vote, Z's made up 10% of our electorate in this last vote. Increasingly, In every single presidential election and midterm, actually, since 2004, the youth vote has gone Democrat in every single one and in increasing margins. So you actually saw with Barack Obama in 2008, he won the youth vote by 30 points. Hillary Clinton actually won the youth vote by 30 points in 2016, but there was a much lower voter turnout. So the youth that showed up voted for Hillary, but the absolute number of youth who showed up wasn't high enough to actually turn that vote. And then the Democrats run, even in the midterms in 2018, by 35% plus. And so it's really interesting. So we are seeing, when you talk about the power of the youth in terms of their numbers, how that is going to increasingly impact voter turnout and the policies that our electorate, these young voters who will increasingly make up a larger and larger percent of our population, the kinds of policies that they will support. And in in fact, this year, as I said, or in 2020, Z's only met up 10% of our electorate, right? But they're 27% of our population. So you give them another decade and you think about how significant that shift is going to be. We go back to 2000, around 80% of the voting population were boomers and higher. That's just going to flip over the next decade. Republican voters, if you just look at the numbers, tend to be religiously affiliated. They tend to be more white. They tend to be over the age of 45. 
So of course, we have Zs and millennials are under the age of 45. They're the most diverse generations we've experienced, and they also tend to have lower religious affiliation. If you look at the silent generation, for example, I think 84% of them identify as Christian, even boomers, about 70% identified as Christian. Whereas now with Zs, we've seen about a 40% drop across generations over the last three generations in terms of their affiliation with organized religion. And Republicanism is really changing with these demographics. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens moving forward for sure. Well, and some of the issues that are current for us right now, like infrastructure bills and climate change and some of the big political bills in five years, the voting bloc will lean much more toward approving those kind of expenditures. It feels like it really is a numbers game, Mm -hmm. really is a numbers game as these generations and as these demographics shift. And as I may have said last time, but I think this is really important too, is that 20% of Gen Z still identify as being Republican, but of those Zs that identify as Republicans, they are far more likely than older generations of Republicans to agree that climate change is human caused, to agree that Blacks are not treated equally to whites, to agree that the government should be more involved and do more to help solve problems. So even the Zs who do identify as Republicans because of the way that they have grown up, again, online with so much access to their peers of color and to what's happening in the world, it has given them a different worldview as a young Republican than a lot of Republicans of older generations. So that's going to then ripple not only through government involvement in the world, but also in legislation, lobbying, how businesses operate policies that protect people rather than protect companies, that all of those will now slant a little more toward the progressive side, the Pandora Papers, and talking about Mm. how rich people are sheltering income, this economic divide widening, digital divide widening. Those seem to be issues that Zs would care about. And 20 years from now, we will have shifted a lot of the way we do business in the world. Absolutely. And I think actually this is a great data point from just the last week. In politics, we know some of the underlying trends by looking at the numbers, right? But it will be another voting cycle or two until we really see the impact of Gen Zs as a growing part of our electorate. But already when you look at the impact on business, for example. There is a company that is a Gen Z run company that's called Parade. I may have mentioned this last time because to me, it's really an extraordinary example of how Gen Zs are not waiting to make the kind of impact that they want to make in the world. I call them the creator generation because from a very young age, and I'd actually love to talk about this more as well, because I think for a lot of your listeners who are involved in the business world, it's really critical to understand this generation in terms of their history of creation and their orientation toward creation. And as part of that, they're not shy to create their own companies or create their own solutions if they don't exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And so Cami Tellas was 22 years old or 21 years old, maybe dropped out of college to begin the parade underwear company because she didn't feel that there was a company that existed in the world, an underwear company that represented the values of body positivity, sustainability, inclusion in the way that she wanted to see. 
And so two years ago, she started the Parade Underwear brand, which is all based on these Gen Z values of, again, inclusion, diversity, body positivity, sustainability, transparency, all of the things that Zs are asking companies to do. And some companies are doing, some companies have historically done, but many companies are much too slow and doing in a much too incremental way to appeal to Zs. So it was a big news story that Cami Tellez, who is now 24, and her Parade Underwear brand, they raised another $20 million in Series B funding. So they've now raised $43 million. And her company, which is two years old, is now valued at $140 million. She's 24 years old. She started this two years ago. So I think, again, the median age of a Z is only 17 right now. She's 24. So she's the absolute kind of oldest Z that would officially kind of fit into this generation. And look at the power and the impact that she and her company have already made. And the expectation that kind of re-establishing the requirement of a company in terms of diversity and inclusion and body positivity and sustainability, really changing the whole conversation around what is required and what's possible. It's interesting because I often hear clients say, why is this okay? Fill in the blank. Why is it acceptable that we haven't changed our policies about how we treat people or any number of things? And part of it is because the cohort of competitive companies hasn't required that we do. Right. There's not a competitor yet who will step in and eat our lunch by doing things differently. And as long as nobody is doing it, then no one is compelled to change. It's nice to do, but it's not required for survival. Now it's going to be required for survival in an increasing rate. And if I may, if I may talk a little bit more about this generation in terms of their creative orientation, because this is something we didn't talk about last time, and I think is so important to understand what is so different about them, is that when it comes to their digital usage, millennials have been much more consumers. So again, the iPhone didn't even come out until the median age of a millennial was 19. Instagram, I think they were around 22. And so to a large part, it's certainly been networking, posting, seeing what their friends post, following sponsored content, following influencers, a lot of consumption of content for millennials. Whereas one of the ways that Gen Z is so different is that from a really young age, they have been content creators. We think about TikTok. They are from a very young age creating videos. That's the fun of TikTok. You're creating content, you're creating videos, and you're putting them out there. Right? We grew up on Saturday mornings watching Saturday morning cartoons, which were highly produced by people who are experts in animation, experts in production, experts in all of these various things. Zs grew up watching YouTube. The far majority of Zs are on YouTube on almost a daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis. So they grew up, maybe not watching Saturday morning cartoons, but watching just everyday people create content, create videos in their bedrooms, in their basements. It democratized the whole game. And so Zs, it just seems to them that everybody can be a creator. You don't need to be in Hollywood. You don't need to be an animator. You don't need to be a producer. You don't need to be any of these things. Anyone can produce content. And even in terms of the video games that they played, right, where they grew up playing Minecraft, which was just a completely wide open, create the world that you want to create, build what you want to create. Digital to them has been an invitation to create from a really young age in a way that no other generation had. 
they certainly learn to create online. And so to them, it's just a natural extension of that, that they could create the world they wanted to in Minecraft. They can create the world that they want to or the company that they want to in our world. And we see that. And when you ask Zs, 76% of them say that their goal is to be an entrepreneur. Their goal is to be able to create a vision and put that out into the world. And they believe that they can do that. There was actually a Gallup poll where they interviewed students from first to 12th grade and 24% of them said they had already created their own business of some kind. And most of this was an online business of some kind. It could have been creating digital stickers. It could have been creating filters that people could download on Instagram. It could have been a virtual store of some kind online. It could be any kind of thing, but for 24%, almost one fourth of first to 12th graders to say that they had already created an online business of some kind speaks to their incredible sense of creativity and entrepreneurialism. And to your point, Maureen, their lack of fear to go ahead and create their vision, and put it out into the world. So increasingly, we are going to see them creating the competition. We're going to see them raising these requirements that other companies will have no choice but to follow if they want to stay in the game. Well, the other thing that speaks to me as you say that is overall business savvy. Like to start a business, I have to figure out how to collect money. I have a bank account or a Venmo account or something because if it's online, it's not a lemonade stand with a bunch of quarters or whatever the offline variation. So they're navigating, again, a level of complexity that is unprecedented in prior generations. It absolutely is. And everything's been democratized though, right? So you can collect money easily via Venmo or via any of these kinds of things. If we think about one of the most famous Zs, that would be Billie Eilish, for example, right? She is in this creator space. We all know Billie Eilish. Billie is a very uniquely Gen Z story because unlike older musicians and creators who would have been signed by a music company, for example, talk about the democratizing of creation. Billy recorded a song at home in the bedroom with her brother and then just posted it to the music hosting website SoundCloud to share with her teacher. And it ended up going viral. So she didn't even post it to share with the broad public. It was actually just sharing to this music hosting website SoundCloud just so that her teacher had access to it. It ended up going viral. To date, it has had something like over 40 7 million listens just on the SoundCloud app alone. But following that, never signed with the company, right? Recorded the entire album at home in the bedroom with DIY equipment. Never worked through a music company to create some kind of brand and promotion. I mean, she essentially just developed her following organically via social media. So I think that's a great example of the democratizing of any type of creativity. And these young people look at people like Billy or look at people like Cami Tellez, who founded Parade, and say, we can do it, right? We have what we need. We have the tools available to us. We are resourceful. We can figure it out. I think of what Junior Achievement's doing with helping kids through a simulated business community. And it takes some level of sophistication to figure out pricing and distribution and taking in money and figuring out how much you owe and and not having to go to your parents and say, hey, I just bought this stuff, help me. It sounds like they are, in some way or another, learning this information quickly and early. 
Yeah, there is some necessity that is driving this as well, I would say. So this is where I think we have to be careful sometimes to not look at Z's and say that this is all just coming from a place of idealism or just raw creativity. A lot of it is also coming from necessity because these Z's have also grown up during a time of incredible instability, of economic instability. Z's grew up with parents who lived through the 2008 economic crisis. They grew up watching the generation ahead of them, which for a lot of them might include older siblings or cousins or family members or whomever it is, the millennials, who have had a difficult time launching themselves in the world as a generation because of our hire and fire economy and because of the changes in the job market. And Z's know that their Grubhub might be delivered by someone in grad school who doesn't have a job or whatever it might be, right? And so to some degree, Z's have this sense of resourcefulness because they feel that they need to. They know how difficult it is to get a job with any kind of guaranteed longevity or with benefits. You know, benefits are more and more rare these days, right? Especially as a young person entering the job market. And so a lot of this is actually driven by necessity and by this idea that I can't count on our corporate culture to necessarily provide the stability or the longevity or the benefits that are required. So being an entrepreneur, being creative, being able to create things myself and to have side gigs and side hustles can definitely help to protect me and to provide the kind of resources, the kind of revenue that I require. So a lot of this is actually driven by necessity or perceived necessity. So I'm imagining that many of our listeners are dealing with the same thing almost all of us are now. I can't find and recruit enough people. I can't retain enough people. Here's a large cadre of young people who are coming into the workplace and they're, as you said, distinctly different from millennials. They're not looking necessarily for fancy coffees and rooftop balconies. Instead, they're looking for stable income, 401ks, good health and dental plans. And then the complexity of, I have a workplace now of people from, say, 18, some organizations as young as 15 or 16, depending on what they do all the way through 75 or 80. I now have to balance attracting and retaining people who are gig economy on the high end. I've retired from something and I'm coming back and just want to make some extra money or want to keep my brain occupied. And then on the low end, also people who want stability and challenge and education, and they want to create and contribute in a socially conscious way. And then you've got a bunch of people in the middle you know, if you think the bell-shaped curve, you've got these two ends who want some level of stability and then people who want all kinds of other stuff. How do organizations navigate this in a way that's manageable, that doesn't just put them over the edge trying to deal with too many different constituents? It's a challenge and I wish I could just give you an answer to that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fabulous if I had the answer to that? But what I can say is we did just write an article for Fast Company, which was in this actually really, really interesting. So we wrote an article for Fast Company about two weeks ago, which was all about how to attract Gen Z talent. And then they actually came back to us and said, 
can you write another article this time for Gen Z's, helping Gen Z's to understand how to interpret the marketplace? So it's really interesting. So we actually will have these kind of twin articles, one for employers and one for Z's just entering the workforce to help them to understand each other a little bit more and set expectations and help each party, right, understand a bit more about where the other is coming from, which I think is brilliant and really, really important. And in the first article that we wrote, which was really for employers who are looking to attract and recruit Gen Z talent, what we really found in working with Gen Z's is that the way that employers are still trying to attract young talent is still very much aligned with the ways that they were approaching attracting millennial talent, which is very, very different. Because as we've talked about, millennials really grew up more with this Instagram generation, right? And so that was very much around things being kind of patinaed and perfect. And so as millennials were entering the workplace, employers were really focused on the perks, on the baristas, on the rooftop gardens, on the outings, on the kinds of things that are frankly Instagrammable, if we really think about those things, right? Whereas Z's, because as we've talked about, they have grown up in this world that is so unstable and where they have had to deal with instability on so many fronts from climate to economic to now a global pandemic that has resulted in many of them maybe not being able to you know, finish their high school career or their college career in the way that they had hoped or saw their internships canceled or whatever it may be, they really want straight talk. And we actually spent time with Z's looking at job postings and having them point out to us what they found not only irrelevant, but off-putting to them. And most of the digital job postings were actually off-putting disease because it talked about girl boss, get your coffee on. I mean, those kinds of things, which just are downright offensive to them. They want to know the realistic expectations of the job. They want you not to invest in the perks. They want you to invest in fair wages. They want you to invest in benefits once again. And they want you to talk about those things. And so it's not the flash. They're not the flash generation that millennials are. They're very, very grounded. And just as TikTok is very raw and real, they want to understand in a job listing what the real deal is, not the patina. And so it's actually rare that companies are speaking to Zs in the way that they want to be spoken to. So there's great Z talent out there. The other thing is we've talked so much about them as the creative generation, and they're not just looking for a job. And as I said, 76% of them expect to be entrepreneurs or hope to be entrepreneurs. And they very much see a lot of their peers creating businesses online. And so if they don't see a job that in their viewpoint, is going to offer them the opportunity to really show up and have a voice and be able to contribute and be able to flex that creative muscle or doesn't provide the pay or doesn't provide the benefits that they're interested in, they will walk away. So many of the conversations we've had with Z's and this is so unlike us. I feel like we showed up for those first jobs and we felt grateful to have the opportunity to work. 
And we said yes, and we showed up, we worked the number of hours that our bosses asked us to work. And these Zs, because of the way that our world has expanded and because of the digital opportunities and because they're such a creator generation, they don't feel a lack of options in that way. They feel that working for a corporation, for example, is one option they have at their disposal. But if that doesn't meet their needs, that they have the option to create or work with others in their generation to create what they'd like to see in the world. Now, some of that might be overly naive and optimistic. It's not easy to do, but they're seeing a lot of peers in their generation make a go of it. And so they feel in their mind that that is a reasonable alternative to them. Well, and different from when we were young, the whole gig economy is now a different thing, that a lot is outsourced. When I started working, everyone got a job. Nobody had a gig thing or a side hustle. You went to a place and you worked 60 or more hours a week and you got ahead and all that stuff. This is a different environment. Absolutely. And a lot of Zs are piecing together a career made up of maybe three gig jobs, right? Which isn't to say that that's what they want to continue to balance long term, but they are very realistic in that they would rather throw together three gig jobs where they're learning skills that they see as valuable to their future and they're piecing together what they need to be able to live, right? And they're working towards a larger vision that they have, which is their vision. And the gig economy allows them to do that, right? To have their vision for what they want to create and be building the skills or be operating in the spaces and learning from the spaces that they're in. Versus working for a company where they might be, if they're siloed and someone else is making all the decisions around how they're spending all their hours in their day, that doesn't necessarily serve their individual vision as someone, again, who was born in the creative generation and their larger self-driven goal of what they'd like to create in the world. So it is amazing that they have vision and choices. And as we end the interview, I have one more question that I want to ask. Sure. From our notes And from the last interview, you talked about this idea of global consciousness and the image of the movie Avatar. And I I imagine given the box office sales, many of our listeners have seen it. And that tree at the end that everyone kind of connected to the tree and were subsequently interconnected. So for Star Trek people, this is probably the Borg from earlier generations. It sounds like they have a sense of interconnection that again is unique to this generation. Absolutely. It's incredibly powerful as we began the conversation today talking about the different generations and that Again, boomers, I feel like boomers get slammed and I'm the last person to slam boomers. As a generational scientist, we are all just products of the time in which we were born and raised and what was happening during those times. And as we talked about, boomers were raised during this great economic expansion, 82% white, where for the large majority of them, it was possible to live a life that was focused on your individual hard work, your individual achievement, your individual progress through the world as you grew and you aged. Whereas for this generation, they are simply being born at a very different time where inequality has been rising since the 1980s, has risen every year since they've been alive. Our approach to capitalism for the last however many decades has contributed to increases in climate degradation 
all of these things mean that now this young generation has landed on the planet and we're in a different place. We're just in a different place. Not only do they feel so connected to each other and are so connected to each other in this avatar-ish way through their living, breathing digital device and these digital communities, but they see that the only way for us to continue to progress now is by working together. The only way we're going to solve issues like climate, it's not going to come down to individual recycling at this point. We all need to come together and make meaningful changes. And so it is really interesting, Maureen, because I think it is both a product of their digital connectivity and how they operate as such a unit with this greater sense of shared consciousness, as we've talked about. But it's also what our world requires right now. I think that legitimately, if we look at so many of these issues, the only way that we're going to address them is through greater collaboration versus greater divisiveness, right? And that seems so clear to Z's. And so that is their intent. When you talk to them, that is their intent. Again, they're young. Let's see how this continues to evolve. But it certainly seems to me already through the collective actions that they're engaging in, that as a generation, they will continue to move us in the direction of greater collective action versus individual action. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned collaboration because we look at the leadership mindsets and like you look at over the arc of time, how has leadership evolved? How does it need to evolve? And we talk about not only behaviors, but mindsets and the collaborative mindset of we have to work cross industry, cross nation, that we all share a planet. And it isn't sufficient to say, not my problem whatever, the Chinese did it or the Russians did it or something. Right. It doesn't matter who did it or who didn't do it. My air quality is impacted by somebody on another continent that I may never see. A molecule of CO2, right. It circles the earth in in a week's time. It doesn't matter where it was generated. And this generation seems to be the first one that was born into a way of communication that innately gets that in a way that we didn't have to. Agreed. I think that's incredibly well said. Thank you. And thank you, Anne-Marie, for sharing again such a wealth of information for our listeners to be thinking about how does this next generation impact your businesses from hiring today to what do you need to do to retain them to what are the gifts that we can leverage together with this sense of creative focus and lack of fear to create that they will bring a set of skills that we didn't have and many of us have not yet developed and many won't develop. That coupled with the sense of activism and urgency really will help us solve some of the challenges that we're all facing. Incredibly well said. Absolutely have loved talking to you now twice, Maureen, and I would happily do it a third time. What a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we will do this again. This will be a 2022 after we've seen (laughs) what plays out in about six months. We would love to have you back and talk about your ongoing research and watch how this generation is evolving and how we're navigating the dance between all of the generations on the planet. Because as you've said, we all have gifts to bring. This one has different ones. And the maturity that comes with years on the planet for boomers and Xers and millennials all goes into the same soup to help us make our world better. 
And as I said at the end of the book, the very last part that I wrote was called the sequel. And I said, we all have a role in beginning to write the sequel now because this decade is a critical decade. This is a critical decade for climate. This is a critical decade in so many ways, right? The level of political divisiveness we've seen, the level of kind of racial tension that was reignited with Black Lives Matter. There are so many of these issues where we're at a critical juncture. And given we're sitting right now at the end, close to the end of 2021, after a year and a half of this global pandemic, we know we're not going back. We know we're going forward. And so the more of these conversations that we can be having cross-generationally, the more ideas around what's possible and how we can collaborate together to move forward, I just continue to find some of the most inspired ideas and fresh thinking on what's possible and how to get there on the other side of this pandemic are coming from the youth of our world. So our last conversation sparked between Dan and I. So for our listeners who have not yet met Dan, our producer, we are looking at launching our interns and emerging leaders doing something on TikTok and then creating a platform for our young emerging leaders, whether they're called Zs or millennials, at some point the generation behind them, to have interactive conversations, not just us doing a podcast, but creating a home for them that is a safe space and curated enough to make sure there is no bullying or any of that, and yet allow a free voice to explore some of the challenges. And your interview was absolutely the pearl in the oyster that allowed that to happen. So thank you very much. Oh, I'm absolutely thrilled. I love this concept that you just expressed. Millennials very much were about safe spaces, and Gen Z is very much about brave spaces. Because they say that they are not afraid to have the difficult conversations. And they feel actually that it is us older generations that tend to create echo chambers and not be able to lean into the difficult conversations. And Zs feel that because of their digital connectivity and all the shared storytelling with all this incredible diversity of people and perspectives that they engage in on a daily basis digitally, that they're very comfortable having the hard conversations amongst divergent perspectives. And they call that brave spaces, creating brave spaces where people show up and speak with courage around their ideas and have the courage to embrace and listen to divergent perspectives and then build on those things together. So I just love that notion. I have learned so much from Gen Z in doing this work. They have made me better. This research has made me better. This book has made me better as a human, as an individual. And I love this concept of brave spaces. And I try to incorporate that into my life more all the time. Am I really being open and courageous and listening to other perspectives and engaging with people who have very different perspectives from my own? So I love that, Maureen. That sounds absolutely incredible. Kudos to you on that. Thank you. And thank you. Anne-Marie and our listeners for an incredibly engaging conversation. My pleasure. For our listeners, get this information to other people so that we can all contribute to being the solution to some of the challenges we're facing. 